I think initially when people hear about the model, their initial idea is oh, it's just a student accommodation but for professionals, but that's kind of a lot, we could be further from the truth there. And in reality, it's about people want to move into that building depending on where they are in their life. And they might be new to the city, they might be change their career, they maybe end in a relationship. And this is where it comes in that what it provides is almost a solution that didn't really exist in the market before. From Ackroyd Lowry, I'm Oliver Lowry. And I'm John Ackroyd. And this is Urban Forecast, the show where we talk to the people defining the future of our cities. We discuss their background, what drives them, and the insights they've learned along the way. This is a podcast for anyone who's interested in how we live, work or play in the cities of the future, and what that means for the built environment today. Today we've got Russ Beresford and Harry Manley from Halcyon. Would you guys like to, first of all, just introduce yourselves and give us a bit of the background of, of how you ended up as experts in the co-living space? Russ, do you want to start? Yeah, sure. So Russ Beresford, a partner at Halcyon Development Partners. We've been going for a year now, span out of the collective the last year, yeah, we're a year old last week. Myself and six other members of the team, including Harry. Harry Manley, so I look after planning matters at, at Halcyon Development Partners. I think it's Russ Beresford formerly of the collective. I'm a town planner by trade, previously a previously planning consultant, I'm cutting my teeth at places like DP9, a lot of the kind of central London planning schemes. So we investment with Don Butler, legal, New McLeod, construction, Kieran Devonish, James Knight and Nick Dyer on the development management side as well. So we've got a full breadth of um, expertise from sort of the start, inception, site finding, all the way through to financing. And then, yeah, getting planning consent and delivering the scheme. So you've got the Within a small number of people, we've got the full breadth of the whole set of word talent to deliver <laughs> high quality schemes. So, Harry, your background was planning. Russ, what about yourself? Yeah, development management. So, I've worked with some of the big Propcos, Lend Lease, Amazon, Landsec, a bit of time at Blackstone as well in private equity. So, yeah, I've been involved in a lot of sectors, residential, retail, offices. So, yeah. It's a good point to come on to. So, what would be, at a sort of broad level, the difference between co living and other? Asset classes. What defines co-living? It's a subsector in the living sector, isn't it? I think it's closer to PRS than anything else. I think it started with sort of the HMO concept of people coming to live together in, in a shared house, four, five, six, seven, slightly bigger bedroom properties. Generally poor quality, low quality, no amenities, you know, sharing a small kitchen, generally quite dirty, no one looks after it, small living room. But now in these larger co-living buildings where, you know, we will learn a lot that when we're in the collective, when we spread out of the collective, learn a lot about how these buildings can really deliver a quality living space for a large number, larger number of people. With the quantum of bedrooms, you can provide some exceptional shared amenity spaces through the building and drive, a, drive an events program as well through that and uh, yeah, really make it a, a, a really good place to live. And so what do you think the key kind of learnings that you gained at the collective were. I think particularly, Harry, we were talking before we started, in, in the way that the, 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 the sort of planning, what class and the way that you achieved the consent on, on the site, what, what's the evolution of where we've got to now? Yeah, I guess so. Well, I guess previously it was almost, it was a use class that evolved as a spin on other historic use classes such as student accommodation. There, were, there are kind of living buildings that do still feel like a student building or a hotel. And very much the kind of the co-living that we're seeing now is its own so new yeah. type, it takes the learnings from those previous models and puts them into a vision which is ground up and creating very much a, a unique proposition. Yeah, and we've been really interested in co-living for a while and I think we're saying for a while this thing needs its own use class. And I think we've got close to that now with the new London plan that at least it is recognised and starting to 
be regulated. So I think it's H16. Is that right? If I get that's it out. Correct. Oh, good. Phew. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so was H18 in the draft? So yeah. Oh, good. It's good. Well, I'm up to date. So do you, do you want to talk a bit about what that actually sort of sets out in terms of large scale shared living? Yeah, basically. So H16, um, there was a lot of work that went into H16. We were involved when we were at the collective the actual evolution of that policy. It really spells out the kind of broad principles of what a shared living scheme should be about. And that's about providing a kind of good standard of living through well-appointed private and also shared communal spaces. Uh, there's also a lot of emphasis on the, the management plan, which reflects the need that what shared living buildings are, or co-living buildings are about is about kind of operational excellence. And so it's really important at a planning level that you capture that ambition of operation. I think it's difficult to do because obviously anyone can write anything in a management plan, but the policy puts a lot of emphasis on basically upfront at planning stage being able to demonstrate how you're going to operate these buildings successfully. Some policy also talks about mixed communities and by that I think it recognises the position that shared living buildings basically meet a certain criteria. A lot of the time it's single person households and ideally you don't want an over-concentration of that, you want that to complement a local area in terms of the residential offer. And I think that's probably an interesting point, actually, that sets it apart from normal residential, which is often provided for, which is often one, two beds, three beds, all the way kind of up to families, whereas shared living does target that single-person market quite directly. And so you've got your first scheme open now in, in Harrow. What have you learned about the demographic that is attracted to this new kind of asset class? I think initially when people hear about the model, their initial idea is, oh, it's just a student accommodation, but professionals, but that's kind of a lot, we could be further from the truth there. And in reality, it's about people want to move into that building depending on where they are in their life. And they might be new to the city, they might be changed their career, they may be ended a relationship. And this is where it comes in that what it provides is almost a solution that didn't really exist in the market before, whether that's providing a more transparent and accessible rental model. Or no. providing a kind of high quality shared living I think place. That's, that's, the, the range of demographic has proven out at Old Oak and, and Canary Wharf, the two, two major collective buildings as well. There's people there from 18 years old all the way into their 60s. And that's in both buildings, wasn't it? Yeah, wide range of ages. What do you do for a living? All kind of jobs within their wide range of income brackets too. So it's, yeah, like as Harry said, it was a... Uh, is where you are in your life. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's interesting because as well as talking about it from an asset perspective and a property perspective, like there is a sort of loneliness crisis, particularly amongst young people, but actually not exclusively. And, and I think what's been your experience of how you can engender this sense of community in these buildings? Well, I think the way that we see a good co-living building coming forward is not only the basics of good high quality room, great amenity spaces dotted through other building, doing all the standing, the gyms, the co-working things are really important, common kitchens, cinema rooms, all that kind of stuff. That's You can do that, anyone can do that, anyone can go and copy that model, go around and pull in and say that's what you need to do. But the way the events programmes, the buildings we're involved with, will be run, is the, the, a big push to, to get those events programmes and get people together. Not everyone's going to do it, not everyone wants to do it all the time, but make that available to everybody in the buildings. It's included within the price. And it just it really does bring people together. As simple as hit classes, just get everyone together in, in a gym and do a hit class, watch a film together, through to some of the events that are happening in Harrow now, of learning how to do, make things, learn new skills. It just gives that, it gives that sort of, that, that spark to get together. And I'm sure, well, we know there's there a lot of people made friends in Harrow already, and the building's only been open six months, and only really been half full within the last three months, but those relationships are really starting to come together. And it is interesting, there's a sort of Invesco report that I was reading recently, which was 
because I think the kind of the cost versus rental versus a traditional rental, renting a room in a shared house, which might be first stop on your way into London, say, that actually, if you add in gym membership plus other social functions that you might pay for, like pottery classes or whatever it is, like actually you're coming out probably that it's slightly cheaper being in a co-living exactly. scheme if you want all of these things in your life. Exactly. Bills are included in the bills yeah. you're involved with. I think there's a debate to be had about account- whether council taxes continue to be included. It varies so, so much within the London boroughs and also energy prices as well obviously a hot topic right now yeah they're included right now and that seems like a great deal for a lot of people in harrow yeah, yeah. Uh, but not so good for the building owners <laughs> as, uh, as the prices continue to go but that's about monitoring and making sure people don't abuse the the fact that they've got free energy yeah and there's a there's gonna be a drive but to i think and that's a, I, our background I me and john's background is, is sustainable design and i think what i've always felt is that like on the split of our clients our, our commercial clients are often much more incentivized to think about the operational energy running of the building because often they will be the first part of course. They've got a reason to have to think about this in the long term, whereas yeah. uh, property residential developers who are selling the flats don't have the mm-hmm. same. And even PRS, I think, you probably would have to pay the, the individuals to pay their own bills. So this would be a use class where if you keep the energy bills included, you're going to see developers really trying to ramp up the sustainable performance of the mm-hmm. building to get down that operational cost. And that, that's a, a good thing. Yeah, yeah, 100%. <laughs> yeah it's very, very much first and foremost, isn't it? It's part of our yeah. approach to new sites is to build, start to build a sustainability strategy. So things yeah. like solid shading and building from day one yeah, yeah. rather than yeah. being retrospectively applied through design. I think that's interesting because it's one of the things that London, New London Plan doesn't account for. And I was chatting to a contractor the other day. We were talking about what would be the optimum design for a kind of a unit, like a co-living unit. And he was saying, well, actually, north and south should be totally different because the south should have a balcony, even though you don't need it, because it would then shade the unit yeah, below yeah. and reduce your requirement for comfort cooling. And I thought that was quite, quite a smart idea. But you don't want to plan. The London Plan tends towards being a bit too literally like prescriptive in any case and I feel like at the moment the co-living one's pretty broad and you, you, I could see it going the way where you're actually suddenly being told exactly what to do do you think that would be helpful yeah. or unhelpful probably a little unhelpful really I think it's very much site specific isn't it I it's, think it's context specific oh you're near a busy road so therefore you've got to get your windows shut overheating is a big problem some of those sites um, yeah yeah and again through drafty and those kind of single aspects rooms um yeah, it's, it's, there's no, as Harry said, there's no, no one size fits all for these. I, mean, I think each of our sites have other different challenges, but then you could have different opportunities as well. A site in Ellsville is adjacent to a river, with loads of wild planting, open up to new public realms, create new pedestrian improvements. Yeah, different approaches, I think. And I think that the London plan is, has gone from a document being a strategic document of 100 pages to one of about 700, yeah, yeah. I think. Yeah. And that just reflects that. And the nature of the document is now the nature of the beast, I guess. Yes. Now, it's definitely, there's helpful parts to it, but I do feel like it's bloated now and too prescriptive on certain things where, as designers, I think you need a headline of what you're trying to achieve rather than a, a toolkit of how to achieve it. But I, I think if you're somebody that's employing a poor designer, that might be more relevant, that you need mm-hmm. to be given exact kind of bin sizes and locations. Yeah. So I think this is quite a hard one to answer, but, you know, what's the size of the opportunity? We think there's a critical mass that's about to turn this year for co-living and I think maybe that's because of the timing of the legislation and Covid. The Covid dampened what was actually starting to grow and then it was being given some guidelines to grow with and then Covid happened and everyone went that's never going to work. Now that's over. Well as everyone was moving out of London that was, that was yeah, exactly. COVID. everyone's coming back again. I like the size of opportunity we think is enormous. It starts at the curve of this like we think is, you know, is here to stay 
asset class within the living living uses. There are many buildings that are up and running of, of scale. You know, Harrow is, is you know, generally from a piece of paper designed to be a code building through sewage generous planning, short stay, but minimum four months. That's right. Yeah. Minimum four months. Three, three months. Minimum three, sorry. Minimum three months. People are staying for 12 months there. Now open, prove, proven that the concept works. The, We've got the rental levels about right as well. You know, what the proof we're in the pudding is people stick and stay and renew. That's going to be interesting to see what happens in the sort of in a few months' time. But there, are, there just aren't many, many buildings out there in the coding sector right now that are open and you can move into. But people want this opportunity. We strongly believe that. And what do you think? What are the obstacles from it being delivered at a wide scale that you see in the market at the moment? There's planning, I think. Probably, probably yeah. <laughs> planning from a political angle, obviously, it does have some politicians have still got issues with it. Yeah. So, I mean, there are some London boroughs that will just say that if a new site lands on our table, it's in that specific borough, we'll just say no, unfortunately, just because we just know it's just not going to be a feasible option within a reasonable time period. Yeah. And do a lot of work to try and educate planners, take them on our buildings, show them some of the benefits. But fortunately, for some of them have got this established mindset that the living is just not going to work. Has that not changed with the new London plan? Or have you not had a not chance? Not in some boroughs, no. No, it, I think generally it's warming up. Mm. But some boroughs are still avoid, unfortunately. Hopefully we can be Although I think some of the ones that were traditionally avoid are now more, much more amenable. Yeah. To it. Yeah. And because they, a lot of these head planners have a GLA background. And now they see something from the GLA that's recognising this as not just an asset class, like an actual genuine solution to the, or part of the solution to the housing crisis. And they have softened their mindset or sort yeah. of their blanket opposition to the, it. The, the, the attitude to it is it's a dumbed down form of living it's a cheap way to build stuff you're trying to pile people in that was that's steve's view i think it was rabbit, rabbit hutches wasn't that yeah, yeah view. having harrow now open and available to, to see people that happy and living there and seeing the quality of the building the architectural solutions we've got and the amenity space we've got to deliver in that, in that building has been really useful to actually educate people to understand that coding can be a good thing I think we'll move that on a big step when Ellswood opens later in October. It's sort of Gen 3 of Coleman as we see it. 310 rooms, so it's a bit much bigger building. Better amenities, rooms are slightly different. But we, we're really proud with Harrow. I think we'll be even prouder with, with Ellswood because it's just the evolution step stepping forward. And I think we can't wait to show people around the council this especially. Yeah. So it's interesting going around the Harrow scheme last week. Are there parts of the building that have surprised you so my example of this is that I went around in the middle of the day and the sort of ground floor co-working space was really well used. That was amazing. And then there's this incredible kitchen sort of amenity that spills out onto a balcony on the seventh floor, something like that, which surprisingly in the middle of the day, I would have much rather worked there. And yet that was empty. Is that sort of surprised you that people are using it differently to the way that you expected? That's a question. Yeah, I think, same as you, Ollie, I think I'd be working up there rather than down in the on the ground floors. It's, it's cracking light and really good views. But... We've, looked, we've recently carried out a survey on site, understand the use of the spaces. That report is coming out in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, proof when they put in when that report's released, I think. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think there's something, and that's very much that living space on top. And, and just from a personal perspective, I quite enjoy the idea of a separation of work and living almost. And so you can see yeah. the logic to yeah, people yeah, the going downstairs using the workspace and then going upstairs to, to enjoy the living space rather than doing it from the And the people are working down there are quite focused. You can see them, they're very focused on their screen, you know, headphones on, quiet space. Obviously, if you're working in the sort of kitchen lounge, you can be disturbed. So I guess people, yeah. I think it's right, Harry, here's the separation of work and your home. And obviously, people have gone down that route, haven't they? Yeah, definitely. And what do you think, so the new London man's starting to, as we say, be prescriptive about amenity and also about room sizes. What are your thoughts on increasing room sizes 
23 being a minimum. No, 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 no it's 18 is the minimum. Yeah, so it's 23 being the draft minimum. guidance at the moment is, I think, it, between 18 and 27, I think. 27, yeah. Basically, the previously when we were the collective, some of those room sizes were as low as 11 or 12 square metres. There was genuine resident feedback that those were too small. People liked the building, but the rooms were just too small for function. That increased, and in Harrow, the kind of basic room size is just, just a shy of 17. Just shy of 17, which we think works pretty well. But we've since evolved that room type now into a standardised kind of 18 square metres. And we believe that kind of works well, but then also provides a good value for money. The problem is, if you make it too big, then you're stuck with a lot of dead space, and people question the, the value of it. And I think from our perspective as well, we'd probably want to put that. We believe that it's schemes need to have a certain quantum of shared space as well. We wouldn't, and I think the GLA would, would, would agree with this point as well. We wouldn't see a scheme with a good co living scheme that had kind of bigger units at the expense of providing almost kind of any amenity space because mm. then it's just a building full of micro units. Yeah, that's the whole concept is you sleep in your room, you live in a building. Yes, yeah. but that's not for everyone every day of their lives, is it? So you've got to allow people, you've got to give people the opportunity to. So if they're not having a good day, they've got all the, all, all the facilities in their room that they need, great quality bathroom, a kitchen of, of some, but of a scale that they can actually cook a proper meal, they don't have to go to the common kitchen, that's really important. High quality, good with mattresses, you know, nice decoration, and a nice place to be and, and, and watch the TV. But yeah, it's if, yeah, if you provide too much space in the room, you just want more if you're providing. We've got everything you need, and now we've put a table and chairs in the room as well, so you can actually eat your meal, not want to sit on your bed. If you provide another two or three square metres, what do you actually get for that? I don't think you get anything at all, really. Yeah, a collection of shoes. Yeah. Obviously, there's a lot of discussion at the moment about the cost of living. And I was just wondering, is co-living seen as part of the solution or part of the issue? It's definitely not part of the issue. It can be part of the solution. It's not going to solve everything. There's much bigger issues out there, isn't there, that co-living can, can deal with. But look, it is a competitively priced product. When you layer in bills and gym memberships, and not everyone goes to the gym, but obviously, but if you layer in all those all of those items, the, the extras, internet, as this included, you know, what people pay for internet, properly pay eighty pounds a month. All of those things included within your bill, it's definitely cheaper than doing it on your own. It's also much easier to do. It's one bill, one signature, everything gets sorted for you. Conveniences. Is, is worth money as well, isn't it? Time, time is money. People don't want to muck around with it. They want to go with their lives. Absolutely. Um, and you don't have to worry about anything. It's, you know, the speed yeah. of moving is really key as well. So from your first inquiry through to through to moving, is trying to shorten that period as much as possible. With reference checks, there have to be some checks to make sure you can pay your bills. But there's no, with the way we see a good code, there's no big deposit up front either. There's a small holding deposit. And then there's no month in advance or three months in advance. It's you post all the and then you're in and you're paying your monthly bill. So I assume, so yeah, so then it's, it's stuff it's like heating and energy bills included then. They are. Yeah. And, so, and uh, in the building at the moment, council tax. Yeah, that's amazing. So I think it's that, it's that, I mean, it's that security really, isn't it? Because in reality, a lot of private renters are going to kind of live in fear about the bill that's going to come through their letterbox from the first time. I know Sorry, every month. Yeah, yeah. When in reality, you have security and it's, and then you've got obviously security of tenure as well. The reality is, you're not going to have a, a call from your landlord saying selling the three-bedroom property you're renting because the, the tax is so high it's not worth keeping anymore. It's also information overload, isn't it? The amount of admin now to renew is yeah. so complicated with gas bills, electric bills and everything else to renew and everything else and all of that on top of just trying to live in, in a big city like London to have it all condensed into one place who can probably get some economies of scale to, sure. rather than you just with your one flat or whatever. I mean, no, no one in Harris has to worry about the price cap going up. No. Not even has to think about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
So in terms of the operational cost, do you see that there's like a threshold at which it doesn't work? Because I assume you have to have a certain amount of people on site to manage it. I think it depends your view of what you want to deliver. The way we see our buildings is it's all in, it's co-living heavy. It's with the events teams that you've got to have marketing, you've got to sell the rooms, general manager, repairs and maintenance. You've got to have all of that, that those, that, they're the backbone, but the events and that kind of thing I was on top, but it's still five to six to seven full-time members of staff, which cost, and that costs whether you're at 50 rooms or 400 rooms, it's about the same. So just in the simple economy, the simple math of, of dividing those rooms, it's all about key numbers, it's a bit like hotels and the cost ops numbers. It's harder with a smaller building. If you're going to do co-living as we see co-living should be done, I think there'll be models coming forward in, in time where there's different variations of co-living, co-living lights, through to what we're doing at the moment. Yeah, staff, if you want to do these, these buildings properly, in our view, it is it's definitely, it's, you need that presence on site. And you can see that the people on site in Harrow, the, the residents there, they, 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 all know, they all know the people on site, they can get things fixed quickly. It's, it just makes their life easier. What's the magic number? Or is it a magic range? I think it's between, I'm going to be generous here, probably 150 to, I think 150 minimum, just to make the ops work. And, we don't think you should be delivering more than 400, 425 units because you start to lose that community. Yeah. You do want people to know who's living in the building with them, as with your ships in the night. Some buildings are too big. I think Canary Wharf is a bit too big, but especially with the short stay element in that building as well. It can be a bit transitional. Can, what I was really interested in you saying earlier was about the demographic. It's such a wide range. There's an assumption that it's all young professionals or whatever, but actually there's like a range from... I think you're saying from 18 to 60. 60. Yeah. So does that, when you're doing like a program of events and stuff, how does that work actually? I was just interested. In I it. think everyone's involved and interested in everything nowadays, aren't they? It doesn't matter yeah. who you are, where you come from or how old you are. There's people want to learn stuff, I think. Um, I think the events program, they will monitor, they evolve as well. And I think the idea is that residents in the building themselves will start to put events on. That's great. Select the type of events they want. So you've got this kind of growing community. There's a number of kind of other initiatives they run, things such as like an ambassador's program in the building. Basically residents can nominate themselves for a position as an ambassador they'll get like a subsidized rent and on that basis they'll be asked to help promote the events program or let people know about issues that maybe people aren't bringing to the attention of, of staff on site as well so all these kind of little initiatives to help with a kind of running a happy healthy community that's great the, the question i had out of that was about affordable because obviously it's mentioned in the new london plan so i was just wondering about how that now works with co-living um yeah, so from a purely from a policy perspective, it reflects on H16 in the London plan, so it drives a payment in lieu, so that then that's driven by the recognition that the GLA don't quite believe that Co-Living can provide an affordable product. We are actually delivering with Wandsworth, and it was there they opted for it, an on-site DMR product, so that's basically at rents which are 30, the biggest, it's a range of discount levels, the biggest discount being 30% off market rent. That does make more sense than a financial contribution, I think. That's fine. Well, you don't have a diverse community well, you've got, in your building. Instant benefit to it. Yeah. Give the council a sum of money. It can sit there for years to deploy it. Yeah. So. I think yeah, you're right. In terms of your mixed community in the building, so that enables. So from an affordability level, that means people can live in the Ellsfield building from, I think it's eighteen and a half grand annual earnings a year, which opens it up obviously to a wide. Mm-hmm 
key worker basis, yeah, and good. low income basis. Completely turn you blind. Um, All yeah. the rooms are the same. Yeah, so I think that's really exciting in yeah, a yeah. city because that's we're really interested in cities and how they work, and actually trying to really get that sort of mixture of communities and things. It, it can be there can be a bit of a, a wall there, and actually if that, that, that and maybe that's something that hopefully councils will look at get down the road. Yeah, and then another initiative in Wandsworth as well, which was again something the Wandsworth Housing Officers, to their credit, opted for was to nominate five rooms, five units for foster care leavers. So that's basically mm. kids who are leaving foster care who are basically 18 years old would normally be throwing the keys to some form of kind of independent living. Ultimately, that could be pretty scary for them, whereas co-living is more of a, it's a smoother transition, really. There's a lot of kind of surveillance and obviously you're moving into a welcoming environment with events going on. And there'll be support for them as well. Yeah. So the team on site who are trained to help. That's great. So totally on the other side of the recent inflation, as well as inflation in rents, there's been inflation, inflation in construction costs. Where do you think that it is at the moment per key when you've blended all your amenity in? Is your, what's your best guess of where it is now? Inflation or no, just general the, the construction value per key? Free. I think you need to be around the 300 mark, 300 pounds square foot, yeah. GIA. Yeah. Inflation has been pretty horrific, as we all know, this year. All the market reports are saying it's going to start to calm down next year. That's to normal levels, whichever yeah. you, you consider those to be. But... Yeah, it's been sort of nine, ten percent this year. Theory, it's going to go out to your threes and fours again. I wouldn't want to be buying a job right now. No, definitely not. Well, thank you so much, guys. That's been really fascinating. And if people would like to get in contact, what would be the best way of getting in contact with you? HM at houseindp.com. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you so much, guys. Cheers. Thank you. If you enjoyed the show, then please subscribe and give us a review, ideally a five-star one. And uh, if you want to know more, please go to AckroydLowry.com or follow us on Twitter at AckroydLowry and Instagram with the same. This podcast supports LandAid, the property industry charity that brings together the sector to deliver life-changing projects for young people who really need it. Visit www.LandAid.org to find out how you can help end youth homelessness.